I don't know. I think there's something there to talk about. There's something there to talk about, and I'm going to talk about why I find them all unimaginative and shitty. But let's let's. Well, there it is. Okay, so let's get started. (laughs) Are you okay? No, I'm in a pandemic. Hi, welcome to Outrageous, a podcast where we talk about race, media, culture, politics, and everything in between. My name is Chris. I'm in New York City, and I'm joined by my very best friends, Trisha in LA. Hello. And Jason in DC. Hey. Hi, everybody. Hello. You know, trapped in my house. I've been inside, <laughs> I've been inside for three days. You? How's it going? Has anyone been outside? Listeners should know that we got a new puppy on Saturday, and so if nothing else, that dog is dragging me outside multiple times a day. I also hear the puppy, so. Yeah, I hear it too. Now we have the puppy to deal with, and everyone should know that Jason got the puppy over my objection. (laughs) Chris has always objected to me owning pets. It's been a source of You all know how I feel about pets. I've brought it up many times on this podcast. Let me ask you a question, though, because like, my parents got us a dog when we were little and it lasted maybe two weeks because we refused to do anything with it, walk it, play with it. So they had to take that dog right back. Your kids are little. I mean, why did you buy yourself a chore? There was a, an actual intention with this pet. This was not just an impulse buy or a, you know, oh, I wish I had a dog. You know, I'm in the process of further blending a family. And this is like, we now have a dog together. The kids are coming together, owning and taking care of a dog together. And I will have you know, unlike you and your brother, that our four kids have been extremely responsible with this dog and they've been great about it. I'm glad that you all are teaching your children how to own a living thing. So anyway, Trisha, what are you up to? As you suggested, changing my passwords. <laughs> I hate Yahoo. Yahoo. Do you is... want to tell people what happened? Oh my God. I, you know, I've been getting these blackmail messages from various people who say, I see what you do online. And if you don't give me this, 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 or that, you know, I'll be sharing your innermost secrets. And I was like, what are the innermost secrets? I don't use them online for much. So now it's like, I have guessed your password. Now, I definitely know what you've done. But yeah, I'm just like, but it's always Yahoo. It's always Yahoo. And I've been trying to wean myself off of my Yahoo account, but people still occasionally write me there. Who? I don't know. Grandparents? Who? You know, like random people. And I'm like, I've already told you this is not my address. I don't use this anymore. But out of the way, how do you kill an email address? You just stop freaking responding to it. First of all. If you're ever emailing anyone and it's like at AOL, at GeoCities, at Yahoo, that's not someone you should be talking to. I know, right? It's super old. First of all, yeah. It's just like people who've had it. And I'm like, why do you still write me on this? I barely use this site. People still email my Hotmail, but not people, like bots and stuff. Like, Yeah. Have we, have we, have we sorted out a process for ending an account? People never thought it'd be necessary. I don't know. because it's free. That's the thing. Right? Because like you have them forever. Like, I mean, there's some that I don't really use per se, but they're just like living there without me being able to say, I'm axing this. Like I no longer use this address. 
I have a question. What? A smooth Google will do this. I don't feel like doing it right now. Does MySpace still exist? Could we log on to our MySpace accounts and like check out who we were in like 2003? I don't know. I don't know. I think, I mean, it's so funny, right? You just abandon a platform and you just leave whatever else you have. Well, there. All, the, all your goddamn <laughs> information is out there. Is that possible? Can someone look real quick? Can someone just go to myspace.com and see what happens? I mean, sure. I remember looking for it years ago and I, it never, yeah, there's still myspace.com. Could you log in? Listen, I could if I remember what it was. I don't remember. Just ask that person who guessed your password. I know, which is so funny because it's like myspace. Yeah. It's like, you know, myspace, friendster. It's like you just Friendster. moved on and then, I mean, I don't know if I remember if I even like deleted it. Did I say, ooh, delete my account, please? I don't remember if I did that. I just moved on and just assumed that it would just be wiped. But as you know, nothing is ever wiped from line, so. Uh, let's just slide into our first topic. So the United States Postal Service has been around for hundreds of years in one form or another. It uh, used to be, used to be a convenient way to move pieces of paper all around the country and the world. But it has been failing for decades, losing billions, that's right, billions of dollars in just the last five years. So now we're at this point where Congress and the president are interested, it seems, in defunding is a strong word, but making it difficult for the Postal Service um, to continue to operate. The president thinks it would be better off um, either privatized, because he wants everything privatized, um, and he's been a a big critic of it in the past. So none of us are experts on this call in the United States Postal Service. However, I guess my question to the two of you is, why the United States Postal Service? Should all this news about it be something that we care about? Um, and to what degree? Trish. Now, this is funny because I actually, um, I went back to sort of review an old textbook of mine because we actually spent quite some time talking about the post office. Um, when, uh, huh? We, I'm about to explain the we. Uh, when I was I in graduate school, um, we talked a lot about the post office because it was an exploration of technologies, technologies of freedom. And the post office is perceived as a technology of freedom, right? And it was really interesting because um, in my notes, we talked about the fact that there's a real key distinction between, say, the post office and... Um, and telephones services, right? The telephone service or telegraph services are perceived as like common carriers. Whereas the post office was always um, conceived of as, a, as, as kind of a first amendment right because it was, it was essentially the way that the government um, distilled information to the masses because it was intricately linked with um, newspapers. And so because all of, the, all of the protections that you afford newspapers were assumed to be, were also afforded the postal service. Because the assumption at the time when it was first created was that this is how you distributed information to citizens. And that in some ways, information sharing was, was um, analogous to nation building. So it was protected under kind of that First Amendment right for um, free speech. Why do people feel comfortable with the idea of abandoning the postal service? What is it failing to do that people probably traditionally thought it did and no longer needs to do? That's an interesting way to frame it. There are so many directions my mind goes when I, when I think about this. I'll say that I was 
very annoyed when I received a text message from the DNC. I get a lot of text messages lately from the DNC. I don't know if you two do. And some of them are, some of them are, um, and, you know, motivating and whatnot. But this one was, you know, Trump's attacking the Postal Service. Donate here. They all end with donate here, by the way. But they try different and why different else would they be texting you <laughs> it's I, always donate i mean they're not, they're not checking value, in jay they value my <laughs> civic participation yeah, sure so i was annoyed though because my knee-jerk reaction was i do not have an attachment to the usps as such now it's interesting what you just said trish about the first amendment and obviously i think i rely on the postal service there's a lot i like about it but i'm, I'm not like the Postal Service needs to remain the way it is. And I often get frustrated, I think, in our country where I feel like we get sometimes attached to you know, particular institutions or ways of doing things and sometimes lose the like, why are we doing it? Because there may be better ways to do what we're trying to do, but we often are not willing to go there because we're so attached to particular institutions. Now, that said, what bothers me about you know, Trump's and other Republicans' attacks on the USPS is similar to attacks on Amtrak, which is this like obsession with something has to be self-sustaining in the market um, to be worthwhile and otherwise we shouldn't have it. And, and that, you know, that to me doesn't make sense because if we want to, you know, we live in a democracy and if we as a citizenry, as a society, decide that we want to accomplish things collectively, we want to invest resources collectively for a certain social good, then yeah, it may not be profitable, but it's a decision we made and we're getting value from it, even if it's not dollars and cents. Um, and even if it means, you know, in the case of public transportation or even the postal service, yes, some of us who have more money than others, we're going to pay more through taxes in many cases for those things. And then, you know, on the other end, those people who may not pay taxes, but don't have a lot of money, they're going to, they're going to be able to pay 55 cents for a stamp, you know, and I'm going to pay 55 cents for a stamp, but maybe I put more in on the front end. I know I'm greatly simplifying and I will underscore what Chris said, which like, I do not claim to be an expert on the postal service, but, but anyway, it, it, it annoys me. And it's, there's this like Republican slash kind of libertarian strain of, well, you know, if I have to pay taxes to an institution like that, and like that's not fair. Like I shouldn't be forced to pay into it. And that just bugs me. I think, you know, you don't have a nation, you don't have a society if, if that's how it is that everything an individual opts out of and we can't do anything collectively. So after saying all that, what frustrates me, and this has been the case with so many things that Trump talks about, like I think with this, as with many other things, there's a conversation to be had. I think you know, there have been so many changes in the way information is shared. Again, thinking about what you just said, Trisha, I mean, yes, sure. Even now the postal service obviously delivers a ton of mail and does circulate a lot of information, but we get a lot of information in other ways that don't rely on the postal service. So I, I know, I think there are real conversations to be had about viability, about value, about modernization, about reform, but it's so hard to have that conversation. I think, you know, Trump comes out and is, is so abrasive and so extreme in his comments. And then we end up with, you're either on this side or that. You're either, you know, against the postal service and everything else that we should be doing collectively as a country, or you're for, you know, democratic principles and, and us as a cohesive society. And so, so I will end this little monologue by saying, 
I think there's a real conversation to be had here. I think it's very hard to have it right now because of the current environment and the current president. And because we have an election coming up, I don't want anyone messing with the Postal Service when we have an election coming up that we, most of us can't or won't get in line for to vote, we better have a reliable postal service, at least right now. And then well, when this the, chump is out of office, I'd love to have a real conversation about the postal service. But this is the conversation. I mean, you're just, you said all of that, right? You were very even-handed. And then you're like, oh, we desperately need the, the postal service. I mean. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it makes, it makes most of your point moot. Like, what, yeah. is, the, what is the problem with the, pers- the postal service that, is going to be solved by eliminating it, especially when you've just acknowledged at the very end that we need it. Desperately. We, like we literally need it to continue society as we know it. But then you're like, but well, we could, we could debate later whether we need it at all. It sounds like not. No, I don't think ultimately, I don't think we need the postal service as such. I think there are certainly other ways we could accomplish what we currently accomplish to the postal service. Now, I don't know for sure. I'm not sitting here saying, I know we could do it cheaper. I know we could do it better. or I know we could do it more equitably. Maybe we could, maybe we couldn't. I think it's worth a conversation at this moment. And this is part of, I think, our just outdated electoral system. You know, at this moment, I don't think there's a better idea. We've got this pandemic. It's dangerous for us to get in line and vote. And the postal service is the institution that we have to rely on right now. You know, I would like to think that someday, you know, through some much more efficient electronic method, you know, there are lots of things we do now securely that we couldn't do 20 years ago. I'd like to think we could update our voting system the same way. I know that will raise all kinds of questions and challenges, but, but right now we're not going to come up with a, a different, a, another secure way to vote between now and November. So right now, yes, I don't want it being messed with. I think there's a longer term conversation to be had the interesting thing right you said that um we we rely we can rely on the postal service for vote by mail because we know that it's comprehensive there is nothing that we have that is as comprehensive as the postal service and that is therein lies its value as a public good by virtue of its stature and it's um the constitutionality of it it has not fallen um, by the wayside in terms of competition, which is theoretically what's happened in terms of um, even phone systems, right? I mean, when we put it up into the marketplace, if, it's, if there's no value to it, then you're not having phone lines in certain areas, in certain neighborhoods, in certain places. But reliably, there is usually a postal service. And so I guess my question is, can everything be run through that meter of efficiency of mark of, of kind of these marketplace values? Well, like we don't, act, we don't actually explore those things. I mean, really ultimately we have to ask ourselves, what is the value of a thing? And it has to be separated from marketplace value. Fair, but also there's the practical consideration What's the practical consideration? The practical consideration is that they've lost $5 billion in five years. And that if that continues, they just won't have enough money to pay people to do the work to make it done. So on one level, there, there is discussion about efficiency, which like you're saying, I think is a different conversation than the value of the thing. So there's the practical value of the practical value of the thing and the value that it, it, the value that it has in our society and our way of life. So, I know some things about how the postal service operates. I know some like constitutionally, as far as like, it's part of the executive branch. 
I understand how that works. It's, it's supposed to act as a corporation, which seems odd to me that they do not get our tax dollars unless it's through like these bailouts, which again seems odd to me. So I think as part of the practical consideration, it's like we have to find a way to make it work. One of the issues with this, which I was reading up on, is that they pay a lot of money towards labor, far more money than say UPS or FedEx does because the people who work for the postal service have very generous health benefits, much better than, than most government employees. I have a lot of questions about that, but whatever. That's what it which is. is. Which is saying a lot. And by the way, what I'm about to say, I'm not saying this critically. Federal government employees, and I used to be one for a short period of time, are known to have really good benefits already. And then we're saying the postal service has even better. And again, I'm not saying that as an attack. I'm not saying that's the wrong thing. But I think you're bringing up important questions, Chris, about like, again, and, and I, I agree with, with what you said. And, and the question you raised, Trisha, I agree with, like, it's not all about efficiency. I think it's got to be all about value. And I agree with you that that doesn't mean marketplace value. There are other types of value that we need to get out. You got to weigh that. You got to weigh that but, shit and then figure yeah, out how much, how much are we willing to practically pay and shore up because the value is so great. Now, like you said in the, in your opening, Jason, like you had this long soliloquy, which ended with, we couldn't possibly get along without the USPS, right? So this there's election. something there that's important. The fact that we can't have this election without having a reliable means to move stuff around, I mean, that tells the story. I think we have to figure out a way to shore it up. Now, I don't know what that's going to look like, but you know, if there's one thing I've learned from this crisis is that we can send money to whoever and in any amount we want at any time. So when they say, well, there's not enough money, show up the USPS. Mm. First of all, the Postal Service has operated with a deficit from its founding because of the nature of how it has um, charged people. The point of the Postal Service initially was to distribute newspapers, which by the way, newspapers from particular like government. So it's like the postal, the postmaster was like an appointed position. And it was usually a favored status. Benjamin Franklin was the first. Yeah. But, but God, the, the he just school. popped up. He was so busy. I know. He was but the like first the, everything. He really well, was. Fire department first. No, he was like the first federal postal postmaster. Yeah. But, yeah. There had been, but what's interesting about oh, that was the idea time. that was the connection between your post office and, the, and, and your government. And that it was a means by which the government can, um, communicated with you. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting because maybe that's also herein lies the question of um, potentially its value in, a, in the modern age, which is what is that relationship between a citizenry and its government and what replicates that now? But the other part of it is that in many ways, the postal service is like, I guess, probably like the railroad system or the road system. It, is, it extends as far as there is a nation. And in many ways, the private sector doesn't have to do that, which is why even if sometimes you pay like FedEx or some other service, at some point in time, those services end and your postal service picks up the weight. And so part of, I think, one of the reasons why I think it, it doesn't, it operates with a deficit is that I think you get these business, um, you, you get these savings for businesses that you shouldn't have anymore. And, you, and so really what it is, is you should be thinking about how do you extend that service to citizens? And then how do you make a distinction between what a citizen is paying because it's valuable and necessary, like, for example, the mail in my ballot versus like what a business who can potentially afford to pay at the full price of the cost of a service. 
I mean, I think that's a part of it too, is that it runs a deficit because it, um, it offers discounts in, to, to, to folks that it really shouldn't. But I, I just, I don't see anything that replicates the purpose and value of the postal service right and now. And comprehensive. It, the comprehensive, comprehensive nature service. of it, yeah. There's a, there's a post office in every zip code. Generally, right. think about yeah. that. And, and I, I think that's the piece of it. That's the big that. That's yeah. huge. But you know, a, even if even if your post office is like seventy miles away because you live on like somewhere in North Dakota, there's a place you can go where people can send you stuff. Even if it doesn't get to your home, it's going to get to your region from anywhere in the world. That's it's powerful, incredible. It's incredible. I'm in awe of the fact that I can drop something in the mail, Trisha, and you'll get it in four days. Four days, like it just it will magically appear. That's incredible. You know, I don't know enough about the economics of it. You know, I assume that the USPS has government contracts, especially for things like mail-in ballots, if it's like, you know, if they pay for the barcode so we don't have to put stamps on stuff. Obviously, they're not eating that. The government probably has to pay for that. I don't know. I mean, maybe they should be getting tax money. If this really is a critical service that we can't do without, like so many other critical services, like maybe we shouldn't be forcing them to operate as a business, especially not in this crowded marketplace. Now, however... I was reminded, Trisha, of something that you said a long time ago, um, back when we were talking about the recession. You know what I'm going to say? You know, you had said once, uh, you know, when we were talking about bailing out big business, you're like, sometimes businesses need to fail because they don't speak to the moment. Where would we be, you said, if we had bailed out the Pony Express in the 19th century, right? They failed because telegrams were a thing and we didn't need them anymore, which is the point that. Uh, the president and some other people are saying like, listen, UPS can do this. They have better customer satisfaction. They have better on the job satisfaction from employees. They spend less on labor. Like let's lean on UPS or FedEx or DHL and all these other places. But they're not comprehensive. And that's the problem with them. And that's why they're efficient. And that's why they, that's why they. Yeah, because um, they can decide, oh, there's nobody living in South Dakota. So we're just not doing <laughs> well, that. So that's just not we have citizens yeah i mean these are the questions i mean these are the questions we have to ask like i'm fine i'm very you know me i'm very dismissive i mean that this is probably going to make end of story end of sentence i'm very sorry no it's going to make me anti it's going to make me anti-business but i'm very dismissive of sort of the business motive right it's like oh well because your idea is that the customer is somewhere always right and so if the customer no longer wants you then maybe your business doesn't need to exist but this is where jason's point and we talked about it earlier about what is the value this is a this is a public good, similar to higher education, to ed- the education space. That's a contested space, but that's only a contested space because people have decided that education is not a public good. When something is a public good, you are nurturing it for very different reasons. Well, You're you know, our tax dollars go to edu- lower education, though. Because I mean, we but have not decided as, that's a public good. Children need to be educated, so we but not all as much, pay not for- as much as we used to, not as much as we fair, used to. Fair, fair, but the point like, being you know, is that like. I don't understand, like, if, if this has such value, why don't we pay for it? Like, why don't- Well, I think people have dismissed the value. People have- un- people have mis- Like Jason did in the beginning. No, no, no. But I think people in general misunderstood it because I think our sense of it is that we're looking at all the things that are- comp- we, Most of us are living in urban centers that are fairly well populated and we can move around and get things very quickly. But we're not thinking about the reach and the scope um, of all the fo- folks that are served by um, these spaces, because think about it: all you can do, all you can do, is compare the postal services to internet services. Internet services is not 
uh, a, a public good or wasn't framed as a public good. And so some people have it and some people don't. That's not the case with the postal service. So that, that's all true. I just would keep in mind that we've chosen to make the postal service as comprehensive as it is. And if we determined that there was another model that could achieve the same aims and get more value, we should be open to that. And so, sure. but what is that? Yeah, in hundred years, what has it been? Well, my hope is that, you know, it was interesting reading the, the articles that we read about the history of the postal service and what it said was very early on in the colonies, you know, there weren't post offices. There were like bars that, you know, you had your, your mail delivered to the, the tavern down the street. Where's this going? It. Yeah. So, so in a hundred years, what I hope is that we have a, a comprehensive national health service and there's a health clinic in every community and you could get your mail there. There doesn't need to be a separate building that's just Jason, that's just always pushing your liberal agenda. <laughs> well, I mean, the thing, but, the thing, but see, the question, the, the thing that's so interesting to me is that we can't even get people to find that health is a value and a universal <laughs> value. <laughs> what they think You're asking for a lot, Jay. That getting the mail is some value. <laughs> listen, I, I listen. The more we talk about it, the more resolute I am. Like, we we're, we tend to undervalue the Postal Service because we're so used to it. Full disclosure, I check my mail maybe once a week. And when I do, there's nothing in there that I want, right? It's all like random catalogs I thought I forgot right. to cancel, like the bulletin from our school, our college, Trisha. And all I do is flip to the back to see if anyone I know died, then I throw it out. Um, <laughs> I don't receive a lot of mail, right? So maybe I don't want to sound like a hypocrite, right? Because I'm not a user of the postal service, but I don't have to be. Do you know what I mean? Like I have so many means at my disposal disposal to move things around. And I'm not everyone. Not everyone has two computers and two phones. Not everyone has the ability to pay for FedEx or a UPS drop in their neighborhood or the rest of it. And the, comp the comprehensive nature of the USPS and sort of like the egalitarianism of it, the fact that stamps cost the same for everybody. There's something to that that I don't want to get away from. But so I, it's great. I mean, I hear what you just said and I think, yeah, it's equal but not equitable. I'm thinking there, you know, I'm sure there are a ton of people like you, Chris, why would we pay people to deliver stuff to your mailboxes? Yes, there are people that need those delivery services. And if we weren't paying people to deliver mail that you don't want to your mailbox, we'd have more money for the people that actually need the service. That's a prime example of why e equality is not equity. But you know what? The thing about that is that if I, but you know how privilege works. The postal service exists because some privileged people utilize it. If it was That's just true. something that was determined that it was necessary for poor people, there it goes. Okay? There it goes. Anything that is utilized that is perceived to be utilized by a certain section of the population that is undervalued, then that service becomes even worse. So the idea that why don't we make it only available to the people who really need it? Mm, I'm not okay with that. I'd rather I'd rather stuck with the heavy late be stuck with the heavy burden of everyone using it than deal with the fact that we are a nation that is very comfortable giving poor value to folks who are less than in our minds. I just that that's unfortunately what would happen. 
just don't know why we have to have this conversation about public works. Can't yeah, we just accept, can't can we just accept that we have a, a postal service and just we make sure that it operates? Because, you know, I, I, I hear what you're saying about equality versus equity, Jason, but it's like, I, just, I don't know why we're having that conversation. It exists. It costs the same for everybody. Yes, I get a lot of bullshit in my mail, but it doesn't necessarily take away, like on a one-to-one day-to-day, like you can talk about the big picture with all the money. On the one-to-one day-to-day, me getting a bunch of shitty catalogs does not stop anyone in the country from mailing something. Do you know what I mean? It's not like we're running out of, like there's only so much effort they can do to deliver the mail and all my shitty catalogs are taking it away from people who really need the service. That's not the way it goes. Now, yes, there are financial issues that we need to look at, but I think we can tackle those because like, like I said, like I learned the past two months, there's enough money to do whatever we want in this country. You know, it's just about the will. I just don't know why we have to have this conversation about like, oh, should we get rid of the post service? Of course not. Of course we shouldn't get rid of it. I, well, I have we th- or have we thought about the service that's going to be put in its place? Because oh, I think sure that's some we, private bullshit. Like, no, you but, know, but that's the thing, right? Like, we always care all over again. Like, yeah, it would be a terrible idea to yeah, hand this over to people with profit mo- motives. Terrible. Well, the other thing too that's interesting is like for all of our supposedly improvements and advancements, we we have now arrived at a place where we realize that we can't even trust electronic voting. Well, that's right. I mean, so right. that's the thing about. I mean, that's the thing about paper. That's the thing about the knit. The when the rubber meets the road, the postal service, which is a very low tech solution, is the, still the most reliable solution for lots of things. Mm-hmm. It's the most reliable for actually delivering mail physically so someone can confirm, I got it in my hand. Oh no, no, I emailed it to you. Where? I didn't find it. I know no trace of it. Do you know what I mean? There's, it's so interesting that a fairly low tech solution is still the most reliable solution for a number of things really, um, which is you know, why we are not abandoning paper ballots even. Right. You know, <laughs> it's we- really, really weird we need to move on but jason we beat you up in this i feel like you get the last <laughs> word no but like, i, I to jason, feel like we really came for jason i feel bad no no to jason's <laughs> point though to jason's point about who introduces an issue the problem is that we know that our current leadership is not going to be very thoughtful about how they wreck a system that is working fine as it is if we knew that there was um someone who's raising this question for example I'll be honest, if Elizabeth Warren raised this issue, I'd be like, sure, Liz, let's talk about it. Because I know that she would be thinking about potentially the most vulnerable, to be thinking about communities without access to certain sources. Like that is a person I'd be happy to have a conversation with because she will have thought about all the other issues, right? But it depends on who raises it. Like, I know that some folks don't care about the most vulnerable among us and what the, what they'll do without. So I'm not gonna be able to listen to you. <laughs> You're not. Jason, last word. Oh, it's interesting what you just said, Trisha. I mean, again, this gets to my fundamental frustration because I just, I just think we have two political parties that each have their own sacred cows and it's very hard to have nuanced conversations. So I don't think Elizabeth Warren would ever raise that because, you know, the Postal Service is seen as a, as a left-supported thing, just like, Insane. you know, the Republicans, just like the Republicans aren't willing to, you know, talk about reforms to business or, you know, regulation of banks and that kind of thing, because that's, they see it as their team and don't touch it and guns and whatnot. And 
I don't know. I have nothing insightful to say. It's just, it's just frustrating. I feel like there are real conversations to be had here, but it becomes, should we have a postal service or not? Not like, how do we make the most effective form of communication, you know, supported by, by the public in our country? Wow. Oh, you sound so sad. I am. This has made me sad. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Go get your dog and pet it or something. That will make you feel better. Yeah. I mean, are your kids going to pick up after the dog, like with like the plastic bag and pick up the poop? Oh, they, they've been doing it. You better believe it. Animals are kings and queens. I swear to God, they are. So they nasty. are. We serve them. Let's not, let's not get it twisted. We serve them. Teach them how to use the toilet. <laughs> Have you seen no, them? I'm not joking. Like there some cats can do it. There are pets that do that. Some cats can do it. It's just so, it's so. <laughs> humane like i just don't i hate the fact that <laughs> turn your goddamn house into a goddamn manger it's disgusting stop okay. yourself okay okay. <laughs> okay 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 there's one quick half topic i want to talk about so there was a new york times article that's talking about office space in manhattan and i called it after all this pandemic stuff is over people are going to be like why am I going back into the office? Like, why am I cramming onto a subway car going all the way into Manhattan to go into a crowded elevator, sit in office to do exactly what I'm doing at home? And in the article, they talk a lot about the trickle down effect of what happens if if companies abandon their office space in Manhattan or cut it down. It affects all the businesses in Manhattan, like restaurants, shops, any place that was relying on walkthrough traffic. And I find it really like terrifying, but also like really exciting to think about like how cities might transform if, you know, 10, 15, 50% of the workforce just doesn't return to office spaces. Like, what do you think about this? Like, have you given this a thought, like how all of our lives might change if even like one out, if one out of every four workers doesn't go back to the office? That has dramatic effects on the economy as we know it. I'm going to be sad again because so... I think it's a great opportunity, as you've heard me say before, I think this is what could save the, you know, the planet in terms of it being inhabitable for us. Um, I think, you know, air quality, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, would get so much better in this scenario. And in my fantasy about all this, you'd say, well, you have all these buildings in New York, there will be no more homeless people. But then I think about what Tricia said 10 minutes ago, which is we usually don't, when there are these opportunities for like disruption, we usually don't take advantage of it and say, now we're going to help all the poor people live better. It's not typically what we do. If we could, if we could look at this as like, how do we make, use this as an opportunity to make our country a more equitable place and like share resources more. Because, you know, it's so, it is to get to the scary side, like it is so scary because people's livelihoods have been built around the system as it was. I'd like to think we could collectively pivot to, you know, create a societal engine where people's livelihoods could be generated based on this new world where people don't travel as far distances as frequently polluting the air, et cetera. But then I'm not very optimistic about our ability to do that in a way that doesn't just end up with a few people making a ton of money and keeping a ton of money and everybody else like, really struggling like they are right now where people are losing their job and we've talked about it. it's like you know we keep talking about the economy opening like they're still an economy money's being spent there's just a whole lot of people who tend to be like middle to low income people who are suddenly getting a lot less of that money 
And I worry that, you know, that what you were just talking about, Chris, like the restaurants, all of these small businesses where people for the most part aren't getting rich, they're just living day to day. And now they can't make a dime and they won't make a dime off that restaurant or that shop if people don't go back to work. I just don't know how we pivot from there, but I think it, it could be a great opportunity. I just don't know how we, we make that pivot in a way that's really beneficial for a lot of people. I was thinking about what's been the most comparable kind of systems change or behavior change that we've had. Now, this is a minor one, but I, I'm, I assume like historically the biggest is probably like post-World War II or Depression era changes and a mass creation of new infrastructure. But I was thinking minorly about sort of like the, um, the 2008 crisis. I remember at the time that people stopped using their cars as much because I was, I've always, of course, been a public transportation person in Los Angeles. And there was a real shift towards using public transportation in LA. Um, I remember the subways were usually not that crowded. And during that point in time, people were parking and riding. And funny enough, when, I mean, yes, there was a little bit of recovery. When the recovery started, people did not return to driving. It actually became really convenient for them to say, I'm going to keep doing what I've been doing. And things arose around it. You know, then like public transportation sites, there were little shops cropping up in places that were normally deserted. Um, There were building out um, bus stations and metro stops and lots of services were happening. So I was thinking like um, concurrently that can happen with this. Like, you know how some places have begun to, really increase the likelihood of like non uh, of like non um non automobile streets that has really changed like customer behavior or like i don't want to say customer but well people's behavior in terms of even shopping like if you're worried about people not shopping you can create streets where there are no cars and people are just walking on streets and your restaurants will be walked into and eaten that you know like you can create a space there is a space where you can do that um so there's a part of me that recognizing that, that the possibilities, but similar to kind of like the CARES Act, you'd have to really aggressively support it with policy. Like you'd have to create small business loans to help people do that pivot. But it can't be something where like big business state takes all of it, right? <laughs> like <laughs> you'd have to legitimately confirm that this is a small business that's been detrimentally impacted by um, the loss of 15% of, um, you know, biz- businesses in buildings downtown. And now your customer base is gone and you need to figure out a way, another way to um, make your money or some other way like that. There'd be ways, you'd have to be really aggressive and thoughtful and directed in making, uh, in making that shift happen. But I feel like we've made those, those shifts at different points in times in our history. I'm interested in what was going to happen to city life. We have been locked in sort of an industrial era thinking about work. Like, oh, it's 9 a.m. We all need to go to the factory. It's 5 p.m. We all need to go home. And then we're all going to come back and do work. You know, work has been diffused throughout our day and our time. Most people, not all people, you know what I'm saying? Like janitors can't work from home, like marine biologists who are like, you know, some people can't work from home, right? But for a lot of people who work in offices, right? Now we've been working from home and doing the work and and offices are continuing. The banking industry, you know, people haven't stopped making money. Do you know what I mean? Like it's like the economy hasn't stopped, stopped. People are still going about and- I'm very intrigued in the way like how this might transform like boroughs, like Queens, like where I live, um, bedroom communities in New Jersey, 
which aren't just bedroom communities anymore. People will be living and working there. And so, yes, like some of the stores downtown or in Chinatown in New York, like some of those restaurants might be empty, but maybe, maybe it's about, it's about pivoting and finding where the audience is. Now, Trisha, you had said like, um, thinking of something that was analogous, you said the 2008 financial crisis, but in New York, you know, there was discussion after 9-11 that, oh boy, nobody's going to want to work in a tall tower anymore. Oh boy, nobody's going to want to be downtown. But the, the thing is, is that like, that was a different kind of fear because um, what happened on 9-11 was th- through human actors and, you know, it, it required quite a bit of effort and definitely the government had all sorts of things it was doing to make sure it didn't happen again, presumably. But this feels a little different because it's not just about, it's again, fear for your life. But I'm not sure that people have a sense that the government or anyone can protect them from it in any way, shape, or form. And the best way that people can protect themselves is to not go back to what they were doing before. People did come back to Lower Manhattan, which continued to thrive after 9-11. This feels really different. I'm super interested to see what's happening. Well, it feels different too because it's cost-effective, right? Because for the I companies? Mean, for the companies. I mean, that's the part. I mean, to me, that's also why I think this is going to change is that the driver of it is that the people who make money and have the biggest bang in this will, will, will necessarily see it as a cost-saving venture. Yeah. Like, oh, um, if I give you a laptop and pay for your internet service or what have you, which also would be really helpful in terms of digital divide issues. Like what if I made sure that you had um, secure um, and stable and fast internet access. And that means that you can do this work wherever you want to do it. Um, and I'm, that's definitely cheaper than me maintaining a, a building in yep. um, high property value areas. So there's definitely that sense, but it's also this question of like, I mean, we've been, I think you're right. We've been having like a distributed workforce for quite some time for certain sections of it. But while we've had distributed workforce in terms of like physically, we've also have a distributed workforce also in terms of like hours of the day in which some people work, right? You've got people who are working only evenings um, or some people who are working early morning times. But I feel like other countries also have done like the staggered thing as well right like so it's like i mean i don't think we're going to be inventing anything new <laughs> um i mean for I us think for I us, think, for us it's for new us. but there are other places that have done it probably but like you said like staggered um work times work days i i'd said this previously i don't remember if we recorded or not but like i think we work is going to get a boom you know a lot of pe- people will rotate into an office maybe two days a week instead of five and that's, that will just make a lot of sense. And like to Jason's point, like environmentally, this will be great. I think it will suck for food trucks and the whatnot. That's what's going to hurt. The People thing about a food like truck is just drive over, businesses. drive over the bridge. Drive where they are. That's wherever, you, you know. We go to food truck festivals. We go to, go to movie theaters instead. Yeah. Go to, you know, the question is where the audience? And it's like, there was an audience. There's a market for it because that's how the workplace is. But there will always be people. The question is, where will they congregate? Will they congregate right. at your kids' games? I mean, there will always be a need for crowds. The biggest issue, though, for them is, like, crowds. Where will you find crowds of people? Not for a while, probably. Right. <laughs> um, but I think the social nature of people's, people's social nature will necessitate that there will be f- ways that people will try to congregate. 
It's just, um, it's just that reliable business congregation may just not be happening. But yeah, I mean, but Chris, you've raised the point about all the things that are impacted, like tax, business taxes and where you real, live. Real estate taxes. I mean, I, I, okay, last question. What industries are going to experience a boom if people remain in their homes or in their neighborhoods? I was thinking about that. I, post <laughs> office. <silly>. Post office. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking like Bed Bath and Beyond and Home Depot. If I had to work in here, like right now, okay. So in my bedroom, I've gotten a card table and I got a chair and I've faced it towards the window because this is this is a cool, a warm, sunny place to work. Like if I had to be in here a lot, you know, going forward, I might install a shelf or a light or something. You know, I'm just thinking like home goods is going to be a big deal. What do you think is going to change? Well, thinking of Manhattan, I think you cannot have the lifestyle that we've eked out in Manhattan where it's a small apartment. If people need to work from home, that has to change. The spacing of like of living arrangements have to shift because part of the value of like living in a space like that is that the assumption is that you go out and stay out for a good chunk of time and then you really go home to sleep. So especially with people with kids, like, yeah. to be able to work in an apartment, a two bedroom, you know, tiny Manhattan apartment with three kids in the apartment. It's impossible. Well, right. you know what? It's like you said, like if the shops and the theaters and everything else isn't open, like the, there's no difference between like living in Manhattan and living in Jersey city or further out, in, you know, in, in North Jersey or something, you'd have more space to do what you wanted to do. It's interesting. Well, I guess you'd probably be attracted to space. The other thing that could be intriguing is could you end up having like a, an apartment building where there is um, uh, childcare existent in the building, like actually as a service at the bottom of the building or it's different. And then your children are just there. Mm-hmm. I mean, it may just be a space where suddenly you can create a kind of much more, um, we've been having work living spaces, but it would be reframed in a different way. <laughs> I mean, I think what it is, is the question is city life transform itself. It's not, tra- it's not transformed around work. It's transformed mm-hmm. around maybe free time and what you do with that. Interesting stuff. Cool. I can't wait to see what kind of new dystopia awaits us. <laughs> oh my God. A dystopia is definitely right. If, if, if Jason's look is anything, Jason's like, <laughs> we're not going to move towards equity. It's just not going to happen. Sorry, Jason. <laughs> Spoiler but you alert, know what? equity. You know what? You, it's so sad. You have to align equity goals by the winners of the new system. Yeah. So, so like, who's going to win in the new system? Maybe not cars, but who? <laughs> what's the other? Maybe it would be like Amsterdam. People would just be biking every fucking where. Listen, if the biking yeah. industry had the capacity to compete with the car industry. <laughs> so... So let's move on to recommendations, which is something you've seen, heard, read, or experienced. You think other people should see, hear, read, or experience. Trisha looks frantic. So Jason, why don't you go first? <laughs> I'm like, what have I read? What have I seen? <laughs> Trisha clearly forgot about this part of the show. Jay? <laughs> so I read a book recently, which I think I can credibly say is not airport lit. It's, oh, a, book, hmm. it's a book called The Girl from Venice by Martin Cruz Smith, who also wrote Corky Park, which is more like Airport Lit, which I read and then liked and then found this book. It takes place largely in, in Italy and Venice, where 
basically a, a, a fisherman comes across the body uh, of, a, of a Jewish girl who was running from the Nazis. But it's the end of World War II, and it, it's historical fiction. The story is really interesting. The characters are great. But what's also interesting is I've, as much as like, I feel like I've read and heard and seen lots about World War II and the Holocaust and all that, um, this is about Italy at the very end of the war. So Mussolini's in power, but everyone knows they're about to fall. They know the Nazis are going to lose. And the kind of... Um, the tension that exists between the different factions in Italy, like who's going to rule after, after the fascists, you know, get out of power. It's just, um, you know, it's just fascinating. And like, there are moments when you feel like, wow, things are a lot safer, like Jewish people can come out again. And then all of a sudden they're not, and there are still Nazis trying to ship them off to death camps. It's, it's just like a really interesting moment. I have ne- not really seen portrayed before. Ooh. Sounds dark. No wonder you're sad. <laughs> actually, I mean, it, it certainly has some horrific portions, but it's it's actually not mostly dark. It's it's um the characters are are kind of fun characters. Hmm. Trish, so I read a trashy romance novel this weekend, or actually not this weekend. I'm just back to trashy romances, which is so good. I read a book by Christine Feehan. What I really like, Christine Feehan used to do these series of um, novels about vampires. But not like the usual vampires, but um, and I that's what I fell in love with, and then I just kind of lost um, focus um, and didn't read her for a while, and now I'm back, and so now I'm reading about like a biker gang though, <laughs> mm. a band of roving biker band biker biker gangs who solve crimes. Um, <laughs> and so the book I read was called Vendetta Road. It's very sexy. Um, but it's basically about a guy who goes around trying to um, take, <laughs> trying to eliminate um, child predators. <laughs> and it's sexy. That's very strange. Trisha, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> Trashy romance novel about bikers. Is this for real? To take out child predators. I, I feel like you just did a Mad Libs and you read it to us. <laughs> what? Is this a real book? It's a real book. Wait, it's so just to book. be clear, just to be clear, <laughs> this is about a sexy biker gang that hunts child predators? That's this just a Robert, part. This is a Robert part Rodriguez movie. That's not really the, that's not the romance part. <laughs> oh, so there's a romance. Okay, you're done. We're going to move on. <laughs> We're moving on. Okay. <laughs> Um, I have to. I mean, it. it's not something I'd recommend for everyone. It's not everyone's cup of tea. <laughs> I can't imagine who's sipping this tea. You and that's it. Wow. Um, wow. Well, I mean, I could tell people that I sat home all day and watched the bunch of shows, but this was stuff. This thing was I definitely did. more interesting. I I watched the Netflix uh, documentary Becoming, which about oh. Michelle Obama and her book tour. And uh, I don't know how long it was, like an hour or 10 hours, but I sat the Did entire Did it talk t- about people who bought tickets and just scalped them like Trisha? <laughs> there was a point where they had <laughs> asked her about that. And she says she had mentioned a particular young woman in LA. But now that I'm, that was you. You scalped the Michelle Obama tickets. No, it oh, didn't come times. up. But I was watching the documentary the whole time with a smile on my face and tears in my eyes because 
it was really a different world that we came from. And I know if you're on the other side of the political divide, you may hate the Obamas and you don't know why. Although I do, it's because they're black. <laughs> but, <laughs> but what I really missed in watching it was just how much a role compassion played in the last administration, like real care about and for people and what it was like to have actual human beings in the White House. Um, <laughs> listen, I mean, that was- sure no compassion. That is one word. I think we can all agree. There is no compassion in the Yeah, and it was, it was just so nice to see that. And I would recommend it. I mean, I think Michelle Obama is one of the most winningest humans on the planet. Um, and this just adds to that. I have an anti-recommendation and I uh, didn't clear this with you two, but I'm just going to confront Jason on air. So I attempted to watch Frozen 2 last night. I've and heard that. People hate Jason, that. <laughs> a couple of episodes ago, Jason recommended Frozen 2. And I so I'm letting everyone know this is Jason's last episode. <laughs> I'm outrageous. Um, that movie was so bad. So bad. At one point, I looked around. I said, I don't know why anything is happening. I don't know why any of these people are doing anything. And you know what? I don't even care. So I turned it off. It was atrocious. Jason, what the fuck was that? That I I would rather read Trisha's sexy biker (laughs) SVU gang any day over whatever that was. So... Avoid Frozen 2, but watch Becoming. It's so good. I just I hope the audience knows, and I don't know if it's still the case, but for a long time, Chris's favorite movie was Batman Returns. Okay? <laughs> so oh, is that a bad thing? Let me tell you something. I, what? That movie is terrible. Oh, 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 oh shit. Now you've stepped in it. You're right, going right, to get the clapping right. icon. Now you have stepped in it. <laughs> I can deconstruct that movie for you all day long, but maybe off air. For at this moment though, we'll be saying bye.